From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Black men make up roughly 3% of doctors in the U.S. Oftentimes, throughout not only medical school, but also undergrad, I was the only one in the room that looked like me. An initiative and an event this weekend on the University of Colorado's Anschutz campus is answering the call to increase diversity in the medical profession. I am blessed to have this job. I cure cancer. And even in a lot of cases when I can't cure cancer, I at least help along the way. Then, more Latinos plead guilty than white or black defendants in Colorado, especially for minor offenses. CPR Justice reporter Allison Sherry looks into the reasons and ways to create parity. And later, elevating the work of women on screen and behind the camera with the Women Plus Film Festival. When a vehicle needs so many repairs that it's a money pit on wheels, sometimes it's more trouble than it's worth. But it can still be worth a lot to Colorado Public Radio. Donate it. We'll get it picked up, sold at auction, you'll get a tax receipt, and the proceeds will help pay for the programs you love. It's simple and convenient to donate your car. Get started at CPR.org support. Colorado Matters on CPR News and KRCC. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. There's a saying in the world of DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion. Representation matters. And some will take it a step further and say diversity matters. Both sentiments are at the heart of an ongoing initiative and an event coming up this weekend on the University of Colorado Anschutz campus. Black Men in White Coats seeks to increase the number of black men pursuing careers in the field of medicine. Organizers aim to achieve that through what they describe as exposure, inspiration, and mentoring. Here to tell us more about it is Dr. Shante Zimmer, an infectious disease specialist and senior associate for medical education for CU's medical school. Dr. Zimmer, welcome. Thank you for having me. This initiative has lots of layers, and we're going to get more into that in a moment. But one way the founders have gotten the word out about this effort is by rolling out a series of biographical-style videos, something you would liken to a testimonial, featuring the backstories and distinct experiences of some Black men in medicine. My name is Dr. Dale Cordudu. I am the founder of Black Men in White Coats, and I'm a pulmonary and critical care physician practicing at the Dallas VA Medical Center. I absolutely love what I do. There are very few jobs in the world where I think you kind of get most of what you want in one package. Don't let other people set your expectations, set your own expectations and set them high. I think one of the big issues that we face as a minority community is so many people feel as though they need permission to go out there and be great. You don't need permission to be great, you already have permission to be great. People are scared to know what will happen if they give it their all. If you can take that focus off yourself and know that what you're doing is help other people, Man, every day when you wake up, you should want to give it your all to know that you can help somebody else's life be better. When times get hard, remember that that pressure is what produces diamonds. You should never be afraid to ask for help. You should never be afraid to step out of your comfort zone to ask somebody how they became what they are. If you see somebody who's doing something that you might be interested in, go ask them. Nobody is self-made. Everybody has somebody who helps them. If you want to be successful, find that person who's going to help you. My name is Dr. Dale Okorodudu and I am a black man in a white coat. 
Oh, some pretty insightful information there. So, Dr. Zimmer, tell me in your own words, what is Black Men in White Coats? So the organization of Black Men in White Coats is really an effort to show little boys and actually little girls too, what it would look like for them to become physicians. There is that other you know, piece of DEI work that says you can't be what you can't see. Um, and I would say that it's harder to be something that you can't see. And so what the Black Men in White Coats really does is, is shine a light on the disparities in the number of Black men and women who have gone into the field of medicine. While the percentage of the U.S. population that identifies as Black has increased over time, the representation in, in medicine has lagged behind quite a bit. Um, there are a number of reasons for that, and one of them is uh, that we really feel like we need to let our children see who they could be by giving them role models who look like them in professional um, uh, activities, like being a doctor. What do the numbers say in terms of Black men and Black representation and just really diverse representation in medical schools in this country? This is a really important question and a problem that has been not getting very much better over the last several decades. Fortunately, the percentage of Black medical applicants increased last year, but in the number of men applying to medical school, that percentage was still only about 2 to 3% of the total applicant pool. When you add Black women applicants into that, our numbers get a little bit better nationally, and then we're in the 11% range of applicants to medical school identifying as Black. Here at CU School of Medicine, those numbers have been smaller, and the percentage of applicants who identify as Black has been in the 2 to 3% range, which means we need to really focus on not just the applicant pool, um, but also the efforts that we're making to recruit specifically Black students to CU's campus and to make them feel welcome when they come here. In reading up on this initiative, I read that low representation of Black men in medicine not only affects Black men, but, quote, also the nation as a whole. How so, and in your view, why is this issue important? Thanks for bringing up that point. I think a lot of times people say, you know, why should one group of people be preferentially looked at for a role or a job um, versus another group. And one of the things that I think is missing from the conversation is the fact that the disparities that exist in outcomes for patients, particularly Black patients when compared to white patients or Latino patients uh, when compared to white patients, that that disparity based on race alone is partially addressed by diversity within the workforce. And so all of us have as our goal to decrease the disparities that exist. And the COVID pandemic highlighted a lot of disparities that exist in health outcomes, and there have been a number of national conversations around that. One thing that doesn't get highlighted enough, in my opinion, is that physician representation and other healthcare workforce representation from diverse backgrounds actually improves outcomes. The business industry has been very clear about understanding that diversity in business improves financial outcomes. Diversity in scientific work improves the impact of that science. Um, and the same is true in medicine. Diversity in medicine improves outcomes for the patients. And so that's really been our focus is to say, we're mission-driven in improving the health outcomes for the patients in the community that we serve. And having a more diverse physician workforce is going to help us achieve that goal. Dr. Zimmer, you mentioned challenges. What have you heard in terms 
of the collective challenges that black men are facing in terms of their efforts to consider studying medicine or even pursuing a medical career? Of course, there are concerns related to structural racism. So where does implicit bias um, and structural racism come into play in terms of opportunities? Those are things that I think our society needs to grapple with, you know, kind of at a broader level, not just in the field of medicine. So access to educational opportunities, access to internships, um, access to wealth that allows you to pay for advanced degrees um, and things like the MCAT prep course, for example, that may not uh, place people on the same playing field. Once someone becomes a medical student, um, and if you are a Black man who's a medical student, the things that society knows are happening, like we've been witnessing through the last several years, such as disparities in outcomes related to policing, um, disparities related to gun violence, um, differences in outcome in terms of discrimination outside of the medical campus still happen. So students who identify as Black come with the extra burden of having to face those things in their day-to-day lives. That doesn't go away when you add the difficult piece of going to medical school. In the classroom, it also can be challenging if you're the only person who looks like you in the classroom. And that's one of the reasons we're so committed to the diversity piece is because if we have more students who look like one another, then they'll be able to build in community and we can focus on inclusion, not just the diversity focus. The other thing that students face and then practicing physicians face is that discrimination sometimes comes from the other side of the curtain. We all know there are patients who sometimes say, I don't want a Black doctor taking care of me, or who may mistake their physician or their medical student as somebody who is not part of the medical team and ask them, for example, I had a medical student rounding with me who was asked by the patient to clear their tray and take out the trash as if they were part of the environmental services team rather than part of the physician team. Um, And so those types of slights, we call them microaggressions, happen on a day-to-day basis and can impair um, the ability of folks to do their best work. Um, And so it's really important to not just increase the diversity increase the inclusion, but then also increase the support that students of color, especially Black students, have to be successful in this environment. And that includes giving them somebody to talk to. Sometimes that person is a mentor or an advisor, like people on my team. But what I really want for them is another Black doctor who looks like them and has experienced some of the same things and then can help coach them through what that experience is like. Well, what a perfect segue into our other guest today, Dr. Bailey Loving. He knows firsthand what it's like being a Black man pursuing a career in medicine, some of the challenges you spoke of. And he grew up in the far northeast Denver community of Montbello and is a graduate of CU School of Medicine who was supported by this program. He's now a radiation oncology resident in Royal Oak, Michigan. He joins us now to share some of his journey into medicine. Dr. Loving, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Before we get into your journey, let's hear a little bit about what you had to say in your testimonial. I was always a smart kid in my class, so I never really had to try in order to get good grades. And then I got to the University of Denver, and I was like, wow, I don't know anything. I was really scared that I wasn't smart enough. Focus more on the subject and like the lifestyle. The pivotal moment where I knew that I actually could become a doctor was when I started buckling down. I started to take my education more seriously. 
Coming in, I had the an automatic association of other groups of people, white people, as somebody that will never understand me and that I'll never see eye to eye with. That quickly changed and my worldview expanded. I am the only black male in my class. That should speak to the lack of African-American males in healthcare. I wake up knowing that I'm doing something that I should be doing. I feel like medicine is my destiny. I feel like it's my purpose in life. I believe that I can change the world. Wow, wow. So you're now a radiation oncologist resident. Tell me about your job and what your day-to-day looks like. So my job is to be a part of the care of patients who are dealing with cancer. Mm. And so really it's all different types of cancers. Some, you know, do very, very well. Some do pretty poorly. But the majority of patients who have cancer are going to require some kind of chemotherapy, surgery, or radiation. Mm -hmm. And many times we do all three combined. And so my job on the day-to-day is a little of everything. So for instance, today, you know, I saw a few patients in follow-up that's, you know, after we've treated them, you know, with radiation, they come back and we check on them to make sure that they haven't progressed. And so... I I am blessed to have this job. I cure cancer, you know, and, you know, even in a lot of cases when I can't cure cancer, I at least help along the way. Mm. Well, you were very vocal in that video sharing your experiences and and during your training here in Colorado, you were supported by this effort. How did black men in white coats affect your medical school experience? It made me feel part of a larger collective. You know, oftentimes throughout not only medical school, but also undergrad, you know, I went to the University of Denver. I was the only one in the room that looked like me. And a lot of Black students, this message resonates with them. That's their experience. And so to know that there's an entire organization that's you know, of people that are like me and, you know, their goal is to increase the amount of people who look like me in medicine. You know, it's really inspiring to be a part of that. What helped you make that leap and really apply and attend medical school? Well, it was really made possible by the support and guidance of people who recognize my potential. You know, to give you some background, we didn't grow up so wealthy. We didn't grow up so well off. And so I didn't know anybody who went to undergrad or let alone medical school. And Mm. so I'm a first generation college student, but it was people like my first grade teacher who was a black woman and she saw, you know, my potential and she spoke, you know, magic to my ears. She basically, you know, helped me believe in myself. That was the start. And from there on out, it was just sort of leaning on those who had wisdom and who believed in me. And sooner or later, you know, I started to believe in myself and I was naturally drawn to medicine, naturally drawn to the human body. I had people in my family who had cancer and were going through illnesses. And so it was a matter of, okay, I I really maybe can see myself doing this. And then hearing those around me, including my mother, father, 
teachers um, say, yes, you can do it. And I just, you know, buckled down and I did it. We're talking about a dearth of diversity among those working in the healthcare field in America, and specifically the lack of black male doctors. An initiative called Black Men in White Coats is trying to change that nationwide and here in Colorado. Its goal is to increase the number of black men pursuing careers in medicine. Organizers aim to achieve that through what they describe as exposure, inspiration, and mentoring. Dr. Shante Zimmer is an infectious disease specialist and senior associate for medical education for the CU School of Medicine. Dr. Bailey Loving grew up in the Northeast Denver community of Montbello and graduated from CU's medical school. He's now a radiation oncologist resident in Michigan. What were some of the challenges that you specifically faced in your journey through medical school? Well, um, you know, among many things, there's this concept called stereotype threat. Mm. And it's, to put it simply, it's this nagging feeling that you get that you aren't good enough and that you can't do it. And so for me, it was really when I was taking tests, that was before medical school, you know, right? You know, I'm doing okay. I give myself a pep talk and then I get to a question where I don't quite know the answer. And all of a sudden, I'm like, you don't know this. You shouldn't be here. You're making yourself look bad. You know, all of the other students know this, but you don't know this. And so it's a group that knows a negative stereotype about them. And they're so afraid that they would confirm it, that it paralyzes them and makes them inadvertently confirm it. And so that was one thing that I really struggled with throughout you know, undergrad and medical school. Can you share with us any especially challenging experiences or reactions that people have gotten to you as you walked in and said, I, I'm the doctor or I'm the, I'm the resident here? Well, one that stands out to me recently was I walked in, I said, hi, I'm Dr. Loving. I'm a resident working with, you know, this attending. It was actually a black and an older black woman. She said, whoa, that's surprising. And that, that stuck with that. I don't know if that was a good thing or a bad thing, but I was like, oh, okay. Well, I guess she didn't really say. Yeah, She's just, I'm surprised. And to Dr. Zimmer's point, um, what she said was a microaggression. I would say maybe is a macroaggression. That seems kind of, <laughs> kind of overt. But there's a lot of these microaggressions where, you know, it's not, it doesn't quite rise to the level of fame as like, oh, this person straight up called me this or they 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 did this to me. Luckily, I haven't dealt with too much of that in my residency. What kind of reactions have you gotten where people were excited to see you as their doctor? Oh, man, that happens all the time. And <laughs> it comes a lot from white patients, too. They compliment my hair. They're like, wow, I wish <laughs> I wish I could grow hair that long, you know, but I and you have I long flowing long locks, right? Ago. You have long flowing. Yeah, locks. I, I do. Yeah. And so, uh, or I'll have a, a, a family of black patients and, you know, I'll never forget, I had this patient, she had, um, you know, terminal brain cancer and, you know, we were treating her with uh, chemotherapy and radiation therapy and she just, her, her mother and her were, were in the consultation and they just told me afterwards that they were so relieved, you know, to have me as part of their treatment team. And they said that they felt, you know, that I would take care of them, you know? And so that was uh, really touching to me. 
I would imagine you have other colleagues who are black men who you've met in your matriculation. What are some of the common challenges that they share in terms of their experience uh, pursuing a career in medicine as black men? We actually just had one um, that that joined us. Uh, he's a Nigerian resident. And so now I feel uh, that I, you know, can connect with him a lot. And I, I talked to him the other day and what he's experienced is, you know, sort of the same thing that I uh, had to, which was you have to do, you know, two or three times as uh, as much just to feel like you fit in. Mm. And so he, he stays from, you know, 6 a.m. until, you know, 7 p.m., you know, doing work, doing research just to feel, you know, like he, you know, belongs, at, you know, uh, uh, in the place. And, and it's it's a balance that we have to strike between ourselves because obviously long-term that's not good for your mental health, mm. you know? So it's a balance between perfectionism as a, you know, battle to overcome this feeling of uh, imposter syndrome. Mm-hmm. And so you, you have to balance perfectionism and imposter syndrome, but really the solution is to accept yourself as a whole person. And so that, that, that was actually the advice that I, that I gave him the other day was just, you are fine just the way you are and you're here for a reason. They, they, they accepted you here for a reason and you don't, I, I know that we do have to feel like that. And I was in your shoes not too long ago, but you know, you, you, you don't have to put yourself through this much stress. Is part of the challenge like isolation or being feeling like you don't really have an ally? Like, is it kind of lonely being a black male trying to pursue a career in medicine, which is not as diverse? Yeah, it's very lonely. And the numbers speak to that. I mean, you know, in the United States, one in seven people are black. And so one in seven doctors should be black. But that's not the case. You know, one in about 20 doctors are black and about half of them are black males. And so it's few and far between when you see another black doctor. And then in residency, and especially when you're subspecializing, there, there are hardly any. I was, I was super excited when there was another black resident finally, you know, and I wasn't the only one. And it can be quite lonely. And that's why it's important to have other avenues of support around you, be that a partner or your family. You have to be close with these people because it can be lonely and your mental health is extremely important. Thanks for uh, sharing that. Let's bring Dr. Zimmer back into the conversation. What are some of the efforts underway on the CU Anschutz campus in an effort to help increase diversity and support diverse students? Thanks for that. I think, you know, Bailey, Dr. Loving touched on on one of the initiatives that we've been working on, which is to support students who identify as first generation. It can be a difficult course to navigate um, all the ins and outs of medical school if you don't have somebody to help you, guide you along the way. And so we have a program called First Up that was actually um, initiated by a couple of our medical students and um, our now Vice Chancellor for Diversity, Equity, Inclusion, Dr. Regina Richards on this campus. Initially, we had 13 students uh, paired with 13 first-generation uh, faculty mentors, um, and they would meet kind of casually to talk about the career path and and kind of you know, helping to make decisions about prioritizing different extracurricular activities and then just kind of be a support through the process. 
the past year or so, that number of participants has grown to around 75 um, students and faculty partners who will support these students through their pathway and their journey to medicine. So kind of putting some important things in place. The other thing is to identify groups of faculty and also residents. So residents who are like Bailey on our campus, who are also underrepresented in medicine, will partner with the medical students to support them and to talk to them about what it's like to be a resident. We also bring those folks together to talk with one another about kind of some of the things that they might be facing in the hospital. Early on, when numbers are low, community is really, really important. And I think the school and the campus need to do things to build that community. As the numbers grow, folks uh, develop their community on their own. Another thing that I think has been really, really important is an emphasis on scholarships and raising money, philanthropy, to support students who are coming to medical school. This is especially important for it's like Bailey who come from um, a first-generation family who may not have resources to come to medical school. The cost of attendance is high, and that can be a barrier for students. And then the other thing that I think is really important is to think about the curriculum. So how are we being inclusive in our curriculum? Are we talking about health disparities? Do we demonstrate um, the differences uh, between outcomes related to patients from different racial and ethnic backgrounds? And do we talk about the things that are necessary to address it? We want the future doctors to be equipped to not just notice that these differences exist, but to actually participate in research and in strategies to change those outcomes. Um, the other thing that I think is um, is really important is to remind students that they can become any uh, type of physician in medicine. There are some data that suggests that people who come from underrepresented backgrounds are more likely to choose careers in primary care. But we want to make sure that students know that there are disparities in the types of doctors in every specialty in medicine. And so we want to really help our students follow their dreams to whatever specialty they choose. Yeah, and I think that's important. Uh, we should note that the medical field includes pharmacists. It includes medical research. It includes those who develop medical products. So kind of expanding the definition of a medical career. There are so many careers in medicine, and patients do appreciate seeing people who look like them across the counter at the pharmacy or as their nurse coming into the room mm. as a physical therapist or um, a PA who may be working with them. So yes, a, a broad uh, range um, of opportunities for people to come into biomedical research and also the health professions. So you're hosting an event this weekend on the CU Anschutz campus that is free and open to the public. Denver's first annual Black Men in White Coats Youth Summit. Tell us about it. I'm so excited about this event. I've been working with Dr. Dale for the last uh, five years to be able to bring this event to the CU campus. We have invited elementary students, middle school students, and high school students who come from our communities here in Denver and Aurora to come to the campus for really a day of inspiration. Students and their families who come to the campus on Saturday, and now we have over 250 people registered, will get an opportunity to be inspired by speakers like Dr. Loving, um, panelists from Black men and Black women in health professions, not just the MD specialty, but they'll also have hands-on activities. 
So huge shout out to all of the departments um, on the campus who have offered to do hands-on activities that are age appropriate. It could be um, an emergency medicine um, activity. Our medical students are doing physical exam exercises with the students. Our physical therapy students are participating as well. There will be a tour of laboratories and also of our simulation center called the CAPE on the campus. Community um, folks, including our hospital partners, Children's Hospital of Colorado, the University of Colorado Hospital, and Denver Health are coming together on the campus to talk to students and their families about careers in medicine and opportunities for them to meet with doctors and physical therapists and PAs. We'll also have opportunities for these kiddos to meet um, some of our current students as well. What is your goal with this event and also just overall with the initiative Black Men in White Coats? How would you define success? We want the future of medicine to be diverse and to look like the people that we serve. We also believe that diversity builds excellence. It is not our goal to be mediocre. It is our goal to be aspirationally excellent, and we know that diversity is part of that. We also know that it's challenging to find folks who look like you sometimes in this field, and so we want to um, let people know that this is a place where students of color, Black students, Black men in medicine will be supported to be um, the most wonderful physicians um, and other health professions that they can be. Dr. Loving, as we wrap up, any final words you want to share about this? Yeah, I'm just so excited to be a part of this event. You know, this event is, uh, you know, not just about education, motivation, or even inspiration. It's about empowerment. You know, it's about taking the first step on the journey to being a Black man or a Black woman in a white coat. Thank you both for joining us today. Thank you for having us. Thanks for having us. That was Dr. Bailey Loving, a graduate of CU's medical school who grew up in the Northeast Denver community of Montbello. He now works as a radiation oncologist resident in Royal Oak, Michigan. And Dr. Shante Zimmer, an infectious disease specialist and senior associate for medical education for the University of Colorado School of Medicine. They joined us to talk about Black Men in White Coats, an initiative underway at medical schools nationwide, including right here in Colorado at the University of Colorado School of Medicine. Its goal is to get more Black men to become doctors and more people from diverse backgrounds to pursue careers in medicine overall. They also shared with us details about Denver's first annual Black Men in White Coats Youth Summit taking place on the CU Anschutz Medical Campus this Saturday. When we come back, more Latinos plead guilty in Colorado than white or black defendants. We'll look into some of the reasons and ways being explored to address the disparity. This is Colorado Matters on CPR News and KRCC. Many of Colorado's biggest challenges stem from climate change. Extreme weather, water, air pollution, and wildfires. Stay informed about one of the most serious existential issues of our time with CPR's weekly climate newsletter. Every Monday, a roundup of stories curated by CPR's Climate Solutions Team comes to your email inbox and gives you a deeper understanding of climate issues and solutions. Sign up for your copy now at CPR.org slash Climate Weekly. More Latinos plead guilty than white or black defendants in the state criminal justice system. Colorado data shows the discrepancy, but what are the reasons behind it? CPR justice reporter Allison Sherry has been looking into that question and potential fixes. 
43-year-old Gilpin County resident Jason Hernandez has had a few minor scrapes with the law in his time. An illegal marijuana grow, some driving infractions. He was recently at the Jefferson County Courthouse to resolve his most recent problem. His dogs were loose and chased animal control. I didn't know what it was to fight the system. I didn't have the time and the money, and I didn't have the resource, or nobody showed me In Colorado, new data shows Latinos plead guilty more often than white or black defendants, and they are less likely to get their charges dismissed. This is especially true for the small-time stuff that most people don't pay attention to, the stuff Hernandez has been dealing with. I mean, if if I look at my record, I'm pretty sure a lot of my I pled guilty on it just because it's easier for people. I mean, they don't want to come and waste their time. Jefferson County District Attorney Alexis King has been looking into the numbers. Nationally, a lot of the conversation focuses on Black people, and rightfully so, given our history. But in Colorado, we have such an amazing Latino community, and it doesn't always have the same focus in conversation. While the whys behind the data are not entirely clear, some criminal justice advocates have some pretty good guesses. Systemic and cultural racism in the criminal justice system, a desire to just get the process over with among defendants, and fears that fighting the quote-unquote system, particularly if you're undocumented, will have immigration ramifications. Denise Maez is a lobbyist and longtime criminal justice advocate. I, I just think you're more apt to take the deal that you can get, and it's not a good one. But you're still, you're still pleading guilty. You're not being offered a deferred judgment. You're over-policed to begin with. Jeffco District Attorney King says the previous DA did not offer deferred judgments to undocumented immigrants, which closed this whole group of people off from paths out of the criminal justice system. King got rid of that policy, and she now tries to offer more diversion and other ways out of the system for all people facing low-level charges. So if you have a culture, right, that excluded people who were new to this country in various ways from our prior diversion option, our only diversion option, then, you know, you kind of create an attitude towards a certain group, even if that wasn't the intent. The other thing that may stop people from fighting their cases, time. Um, But that was before the day I got my ticket. Yeah, Mm -hmm. but it's valid now. Um, so since you provided proof of insurance, we're going to dismiss your charges today because that's all we cared about was having your car On a recent so, Wednesday in the Jefferson um, County there, Courthouse, um, like most other places across the state, a long line of people stood awaiting their first advisements, mostly on summons and low-level charges from tickets issued the night before. Although at this stage, many are on day one of being in the system, Arapahoe County District Attorney John Kellner says he's seen cases drag on for months. I'm sure anybody has to go through the mental calculus of, well, is this something I should take another day off of work for? You know, do I have child care? Might, might have to take a couple buses to get to the courthouse. So certainly that's got to play a part into the decision-making process. Which is the very reason Megan Ring, the state's chief public defender, gets irritated at what she calls the over-criminalization of dozens of small infractions and how difficult these problems are for regular people who make a mistake even an inadvertent one. If I get a a speeding ticket, I read the back and I just send the check and we're done, right? Or, you know, whatever, pay it online. And criminalizing people for not having licenses is just ridiculous, if you ask me. Same with, you know, minor drug possession and, and those types of things. Ring used to work in Boulder, where a lot of her clients were Latino. 
She says she always sensed a fear about immigration status. I think the pressures on, especially again, non-citizens about losing their job, if they miss one day of work, you know, if you aren't showing up for your hourly wage and they say, well, if you don't do this today, you've got to come back again. Well, I can't afford to come back again. Larimer County's chief judge, Susan Blanco, says she can't control which cases come in front of her court, but she can make the courthouse itself more welcoming. There was a pattern that people felt like they just really weren't heard. Judge Blanco has done a number of things to make the criminal justice system feel less scary, particularly for people of color and non-citizens. She has added court navigators to help people in two languages with things like filling out protective order forms. She installed QR codes all over town so that people can swipe their phones and enter a room with an interpreter who can offer help. And we started developing relationships with the librarians. The librarians started to come and tour the building to see what does it look like and how does it operate so they could tell people when they come to the library for help. And perhaps the most important, Judge Blanco has tried to explain the concept of probation more conversationally and explain what it means when people plead guilty to a crime. Everywhere she goes, she tells people that ICE has no presence in her courthouse. And what was bothering me is I kept imagining a scenario where someone needs help, but because they're so afraid that they might get deported, they would rather continue to be in a dangerous situation and not come in the building because that's better than being separated from their children, right? So that's very upsetting and unsettling. Interpreters. Hi, this is Kyle calling back. Um, I was wondering if we could get some more English-Spanish translation. Also unsettling to some prosecutors and public defenders is the shortage of interpreters. Sometimes defendants have to wait hours to get someone in the courtroom to help. Other times, they have to do it over the phone, like this recent case in Jefferson County, where a woman was trying to prove she indeed had a valid license and insurance. So I am here with Olivia today, um, and my name is Kyle. I work with the Jefferson County District Attorney's Office. Um, do you feel comfortable speaking to me today without an attorney? There are a lot of inequality problems in the criminal justice system. Looking at the data is a good place to start to find the most glaring ones, because it's at least somewhere to start to try to find fixes. But to truly solve big inequities like this is probably going to have to take some acknowledgments of wrongdoing in the past and some creativity moving forward. I'm Allison Sherry, CPR News. When we come back, celebrating women in film, both in front of and behind the camera. Plus, a concert in Boulder kicks off a global effort to fight climate change. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. John B. Stetson traveled to Colorado as a young man to see the Rockies while he still could. He had tuberculosis. His time was short, he thought, and so he made the trek west across the plains. Camping in the cold east of Colorado Springs one night, Stetson, son of a Philadelphia hatter, fashioned a strange new hat, gave it a high crown and wide brim all around to better protect himself from sun, rain, wind, and hail. A horseman paid him $5 for that hat, Later, cured of TB and back in Philadelphia, Stetson built an empire with his creation. It could fan the flames of a campfire or carry water to a horse and keep out the sun and rain. By the time he died at the age of 76, his factory in Philadelphia was turning out hundreds of thousands. 
He named that hat the boss of the plains. But most folks just call it a Stetson. A Colorado postcard from CPR. With the support of National Jewish Health. The Women Plus Film Festival hosted by Denver Film is a showcase of movies by and about women. It premieres tonight and runs through Sunday. CPR's Eaton Lane spoke with organizers and some of the filmmakers featured in this year's festival. For Ambriel Turrentine, her work as programming manager for the Denver Film Society is a labor of love. Each day, she says, is different. What was your guiding light going into the festival this year? That's a good question. My guiding light, I just like stories that are memorable, but ones that I think foster conversation beyond the film itself. Mm. Ones that people can leave and say, oh, I didn't know that. Or I would like to learn more about that subject or how do I get involved with this particular topic? One of the unique aspects of a film festival is the chance to meet filmmakers and get insight into their work directly from them. Yeah, so we're going to have the director of Plan C, Tracy Jostrigos. Um, we're also going to have Trace Lizette from Monica. Lisette stars alongside Patricia Clarkson in Monica. The story follows a woman returning home after 20 years to care for her elderly mother. I just wanted to let you know that I will be coming. I'm going to hit the road, and I should be there in a couple of days. It's been a long time since I've seen them. Your mother. She doesn't know who I am. What's your name? Please remind me. Monica. It debuted at the Venice Film Festival to an 11-minute standing ovation. Monica is a poignant study with little dialogue, which often meant Lisette was tapping into a different set of acting muscles. Tell me about the challenge of taking on this story and playing Monica. Well, there's several. I think the specific to the acting, though, because so much of it was not dialogue based, I had to constantly pour my heart out, even in the scenes where there was nothing being said. Like when you're changing your mind and driving back. Yeah, that scene. Oh, my goodness. That was actually the first take that they kept in the film. I was really proud of myself that day because it was it was a tough, it was a big shot, and I knew that. Sharing the film at festivals like Women Plus Film is a critical part of the work for each filmmaker. And for Lisette, there is an added layer. But when they, when they have a chance, finally, to see this work, uh-huh. they're going to see a glimpse of this character and a glimpse of your skill as an actor in a very different way. Mm-hmm. What does that mean to you? Oh, man. Um... Gosh, I hope it means that they can dream. I hope that they see bits of themselves in me and know that, like, it's been a journey and that the glam is great, but it wouldn't have any longevity, I don't think, if I hadn't invested in the craft and kind of the the less superficial part of, of my job, which is the important part, which is connecting to the heart and knowing that like this existence is especially our trans existence is more than the exterior. Lisette described the accolades her film received at the world premiere in Venice as a beautiful and heavy moment. Oh, it was just like a roller coaster of emotion for me. Because I think the prestige attached to Venice and the glam of it all is just such a far cry from where I come from, where my roots are. 
And I was um, having all these emotions just flood my my memory, um, flood my brain. Um, and, you know, just the journey of a trans woman from where I come from and then to end up on the old, oldest stage in cinema was just like, how did I how did I get here? Director Nicole Newnham, known for the Oscar-nominated movie Crip Camp, will also be at the festival to show her latest documentary, The Disappearance of Cher Height, which explores the author's work, The Height Report, and the discoveries that upended American gender and sexuality discussions. Newnham says she was inspired after reading Cher Height's obituary in the New York Times. And it had a kind of startling, intriguing headline, which was Cher Height. She described how women orgasm and she was hated for it. And all of a sudden, all of these memories started flooding back to me because I had read The Height Report, her best-selling landmark book that sort of like landed like a bomb in our culture. And I was not aware of that. But what I was aware of is that I found it in my mom's nightstand and I opened it up and it welcomed me into a whole world of women's sexuality that just wasn't being discussed or talked about. Noonan says there were a lot of amazing people who came together to help make this film possible. And it was really important to us to bring it into the festival circuit and to make it independently because we wanted to be able to make the kind of film that we wanted to make. I mean, Cher Height is, you know, one thing she said that I loved is part of the reason I suffered so much and people attacked me so much is because I connect sex to politics. So we wanted to be able to make a film that connected sex to politics in the way that Cher believed they were connected um, and used that lens. And so the festival circuit is a great way to just like enter the world with the strong independent voice of Cher and of our and of our film and, and have audiences meet it that way. Festival programming manager Ambriel Turrentine says she has always had a passion for news and being in tune with what's going on around her. And I think because of that, and of course, just being a black woman, I I guess I've developed recently, I feel like I've gotten more in tune with who I am and I've developed empathy or not that I didn't have it before, but I've developed a stronger sense of empathy for other people of any race, gender, class, sexuality. Um, and I, I, I guess the ultimate thing I wanna get to is Solidarity is what I'm looking for. I, I think a lot of our films speak to the idea of solidarity. Just in my existence, that's what I strive for, is strive to bring people together. And of course, we live in wild times and wild times have always existed. But whenever I remember that there are communities and people who care and will come together to achieve a collective mission. I think that is ultimately what's important. Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of answers to this question, but I guess the optimistic answer is in this day and age, I just hope to continue building a better world with my community and various communities. The Denver Film Society's Women Plus Film Festival includes 11 feature films and a shorts program and opens with Judy Bloom Forever. I'm Eden Lane, CPR News. Finally, a concert tonight at the Boulder Theater aims to raise awareness about the human rights crisis stemming from climate change. 
Right Here, Right Now is a collaboration between United Nations Human Rights and the Recording Academy, the group that puts on the Grammys. Tonight's event is the first of several concerts hosted in cities around the world that will bring big-name acts to small, intimate venues. David Clark is one of the organizers. Well, it's interesting. People are asking us, why are we launching in Boulder? Well, Boulder is a very interesting place because it's home to the national labs that actually inform a lot of the international data and science related to climate change. It's also, funny enough, the very first city in the nation 17 years ago that levied a tax on carbon on itself. So it led the way there. And also it's home to world-class uh, climate tech entrepreneurs and researchers and scientists, advocates uh, and activists. It's a real hotbed of activity. So it's important that we launch it here. Proceeds will benefit United Nations human rights, climate justice efforts and music cares, which helps musicians impacted by climate change. As for tonight's headliner. In our backyard, we have a stadium level artist Wesley Schultz of the Lumineers, who is renowned for his green concerts and his green riders and making sure that everywhere he goes, people are mindful of the environment. So we were grateful that he was the first person we asked, and he said yes. Now the sweet bells of mercy drift through the evening trees. Young men on the corner like scattered leaves. Boarded up windows in the empty streets And my brother's down on his knees My city of ruins My city's in a ruins Come on Wesley Schultz of the Lumineers headlines the Right Here, Right Now Global Concert tonight at the Boulder Theater. Thanks for joining us today and to the Colorado Matters team. Tyler Bender. Carl Bielek. Anthony Cotton. Pete Kramer. Andrea Dukakis. Rachel Estabrook. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers, Tom Hess. Michael Hughes. Chris Ketchum. Pedro Lumbraño, Shane Rumsey, Ryan Warner. And I'm Chandra Thomas-Woodfield. This is CPR News and KRCC.